Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part two in a four-part series delving into the recently published book, Preaching With Their Lives. Co-sponsored by Dominican University's McGreal Center for Dominican Historical Studies and the St. Catherine of Siena Center, the event was presented via Zoom on March 18, 2021, and explores the research for the chapter, Dominican Monasteries Ever Ancient, Ever New, with contributing author, Sister Cecilia Murray. Christopher Allison, director of the McGreal Center, introduced the program. So thank you and welcome um, this evening. Uh, you know, we, we are, had this unique opportunity this year during COVID to have a, a multi-coastal, multi-time zone event for our new book, Preaching With Their Lives, Dominicans on Mission in the United States After 1850, which has been sponsored by the McGreal Center here at Dominican University. So on Tuesday, we are out on the West Coast, but today we have the fortunate uh, ability to be on the East Coast with Sister Cecilia Murray. And um, she's gonna talk about her chapter in the new book. And so the, so this is a part of us of about four different talks this year. They're featuring um, various chapters in our new McGreal Center book called Preaching With Our Lives once again. And I have, you see it on your screen and I have it here as well. And no need to have read the book already, but we hope to inspire you to want to read it. And so that's one of the, one of the, the hopes of this, this series and also to generate a lot of interest in, in kind of in Dominican history and also kind of telling the story of the Dominican family. I'll say a little bit who I am really quickly. As many of you may know, I'm the new director of the McGreal Center. I also teach in the history department here at Dominican University, and I'm, an, I'm a historian of American religion. And so this book has been really, uh, you know, obviously promoting it, but also something of, of great interest, I think, for, for my community as a scholarly community and also among the kind of Dominican family community as well. So and we're going to we're going to have a yeah, once again, we're going to have a couple more talks after this. I do want to say at the outset that one thing that's that you know it's March and so it's Women's History Month and all our talks this 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 month are about women's history. So if you want to invite your students or people in your community to be involved with our subsequent talks or tonight, uh, we encourage you to do so. And and th this is a great actually this is a very good text to um, highlight the history of women in America, especially around religion. But I, I want to thank, too, at the outset, uh, really the, the sponsorship of, of President Donna Carroll, who has sponsored the McGrill Center for years, and also the kind of previous director, Sister Janet Welsh, and then also previous to this is really the mastermind 
of the McGreal Center and the namesake of the McGreal Center is Sister Nona McGreal, who was a university president, uh, did many, many, many things, but she was very proud to be a historian of the Dominican family in the United States and really had a vision for starting a center that would focus on the history of her community in this place and, um, and is really behind the books that have come out of, out of our center over the years. Thank you all for being here. I think we have a really interesting topic tonight. It's really about contemplative life. And I, I was thinking today, I was on a faculty meeting and I, we, were, we were reflecting how, how we need to teach better about contemplative life in, the, in our senior seminar here at Dominican University. So I think it's, it's really great to have Sister Cecilia here, who's a scholar. Um, and I will introduce her now really quickly. Now, she was born in New York. She's a New Yorker. We were talking about this actually before she was came on came on the on the call, and um, I think a proud one as far as I as far as I know. She did undergraduate studies at, at Pius X, uh, the Tenth School of Music, Manhattanville College, really majoring in piano and music education, and then she moved on to do musicology at CUA or Catholic University of America, and she taught elementary school music before entering the order. And this was actually before she was a sister. And she did three years of, of school teaching after that. And then she did 23 years of working in music and religion at the secondary level, so at the high school level. And during these years, she completed master's in, in interdisciplinary studies in Manhattanville and religious studies at Princeton Theological Seminary. And so actually uh, one of our subsequent speakers is actually a professor at, at Princeton Theological Seminary. So it'd be a good connection there. Sister Cecilia became a historian for the Newburgh Dominicans in 1989. And she wrote a congregational history entitled Other Waters. And in 1994, she was awarded a PhD in American religious history from Drew University. And I will say, Sister Cecilia, Drew's Methodist archive is one of my favorite, favorite archives in the world. And so uh, I, I was really glad to see that connection. During her doctoral studies, she joined the project Opus team. And, and what Opus is, is, it was the project that Sister Nona started with telling the, the history of the order of preachers in the United States. That's the OPUS. And so she contributed two chapters to volume one, Dominicans at Home in a Young Nation. And most recently, she's also contributed a chapter on Dominican monasteries to volume two, which is right here. And really kind of looking at the history of the way that, that Dominican contemplative life, which is really a, a history of really women in a contemplative life in this country. And I know she, she's been working on, uh, she's worked on the American Society of Church History, also a group that I'm involved with, but she's been teaching religious studies at Mount St. Mary's College. And I also want to say that Mount St. Mary's College and the Dominican and Catholic Institute is co-sponsoring this event with us tonight. And I know Charlie is on the call tonight, and I want to uh, welcome you all for the talk this evening. And I will hand it over to Sister Cecilia, because um, she's probably more interesting to hear from than, than I am. So thank you. All right, I have a prologue for this little talk about my history adventures. And the prologue I figured this afternoon takes place in 1972 when I'm teaching high school. And one of my girls happened to say, you know, my sister is a Dominican nun too, but she's not like you. She's the kind that stays in all day and prays. And uh, I don't remember how we finished that, but that was my first introduction to Dominican women's 
monasteries, my sister the nun who stays in and prays. I didn't begin history writing and research until 1989. And at that time, I started working on the history book for my own congregation, which at the time was the Dominican Sisters of Newburgh. We've since become the Dominican Sisters of Hope, joined with two other communities. My introduction to this particular job, though, began in September 1998, when Sister Marinona McGreal, who had already invited me to join Project Opus, announced that there would be a meeting in New York City, and it would be for New York and New England research, and that we were going to be the first region to work on Northeast work. And this was going to be special because we were first. So on a lovely September Sunday afternoon, I met in the city, Sister Nona, my New England colleague, Sister Pascala, and another colleague, there were some others, but one that became very special to this job was Sister Mary Martin Jacobs. She was from the Our Lady of the Rosary Monastery in Summit, New Jersey. And she became my guide, my mentor, my, I'm stuck, I don't know who to call for this. And she still is. But at that time, my job was to collect all of the historical background for Dominicans in New York State, the fathers, the nuns, the sisters, the laity. And I, looking at the job, I saw that there were two monasteries in New York that were founded before 1910. And at this point, this volume two was only going to go to 1910. So even though, though there were four monasteries in New York, the two that I had to pay attention to was one at opposite ends of the state, one in Buffalo, Our Lady of the Rosary Monastery, one in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, which was Corpus Christi. I didn't know it at that time, but I was actually sort of cutting my teeth on the most, probably most conservative version of women's monastery and probably the most progressive. I would find that out. So along with all the other things in New York that I had to put together, I made appointments with Sister Mary Martin's help, she told me who to call and what time of day was best to drive to Buffalo, which if you live in the metropolitan area is a six to seven hour drive. So I made arrangements to stay over for two nights. And then a few weeks after that, I made what could would be a day trip down to the Bronx. I enjoyed both of them. The Buffalo fit what I had read and expected about a Dominican monastery. I would do my work from the visitor's parlor, which had a comfortable chair, a waist-high counter, solid, and then from the waist level up, what they called 
with it, their French background, a grill, G-R-I-L-L-E, a screen. You could see the sisters that I was going to talk with through the screen, but you could not reach out and touch them. And the documents that I needed were in their archives, which was behind the screens. So I would say what I was looking for. They would get one of the two that I worked with, would get the document and would put it into a little box called a turn. And it did just that. The box was open on her side. She would put the document in, turn a little handle, and the box would revolve and shoot the document out on my side. Uh, my meals were served in the visitor's parlor, and my evening meal was in the chaplain's quarters where there was a chaplain and a visiting priest. So I had company in the evening. I had a wonderful time. My own thought on it was, I love the, the spiritual atmosphere, but I would not want to be in this house. I, I couldn't live without being able to open the door and go out for a walk. So I waited, went home, and two weeks later saw another version of the monasteries. This one was in the Bronx, and I met as archivist and historian for the house, Sister Mary of Jesus. Something that makes it a little hard when you're working on monastery history is they do not ever tell you their surnames. So I Sister Mary of Jesus, I don't know what, and I don't think I should ask. She was charming, but she had heard that I came from long years in a high school upstate. And she said to me, I have a younger sister who went to high school upstate. It was years ago. And I looked and all of a sudden popped into my mind, Karen saying to me, I have a sister who's a nun. She's the kind that stays in and prays all day. And I said, Sister Mary, would your family name by any chance be Wersinski? And she looked at me and said, well, yes, how did you know that? Karen Wersinski, I taught your sister. And from there on in, as the expression would go, I was in like Flynn. Um, I went to Mass in the private sister's chapel. I was invited to eat in their dining room where I was introduced to the community. And I just had a wonderful time. After the meal, when it was time for archive work, I didn't sit in the visitor's parlor. There was no grill. There was no turn. Instead, sister opened the door into their quarters and said, come on in, I'm going to take you to the archives. And I worked with the documents and just spent a lovely afternoon. So when I got home and was talking about the whole experience, I said, I think I've just seen the two opposite ends of how the monasteries are interpreting the documents from Vatican Council II that permitted experimentation and allowed the different houses to uh, adjust their life as they felt the documents were calling. 
Well, those were the two monasteries that I had to take over and study. So I felt, well, that part of my job is over. So there's an interim, an occasional visit down to Jersey to summit to consult with Sister uh, Mary Martin as to what I had seen and how I saw it. But I also got to visit in the course of several years, as uh, Chris mentioned, I, I belong to a couple of historical societies. And whenever they had conferences somewhere that was near a monastery, I used to put together going to the conference and then adding an extra day or two to visit whatever monastery. So in the interim years, I visited the Dominican monasteries at Camden, New Jersey, Newark, which was one of the two founding monasteries, and um, Union City. I didn't realize then, but all three of these monasteries were among those who would close over the next 20 years. Um, all three of them started out in uh, ordinary um, type of uh, neighborhoods, which over the years became inner city and had had trouble with uh, attempted break-ins, had in general a lowering of uh, new candidates. They did, though, found other monasteries that survived. But when I got this assignment, I realized I had seen monasteries that no one else could see now because they were gone. Uh, at a conference in Washington, D.C., I went to the Baltimore Archdiocesan Archives and tracked down another monastery from Baltimore, which had closed. And at the end of this time period, which coincides with the point at which Project Opus moved to Dominican from uh, West Jackson Boulevard, I had a chance for a Midwest trip. I was going to deliver a talk at uh, History of Women Religious at Notre Dame. And I decided that would give me a chance to see monasteries at Farmington Hills, which is a suburb of Detroit. And I would also be able to see the original uh, Rosary Monastery in the Midwest, which was Milwaukee. So that Midwest trip, I thoroughly enjoyed, thought it was just going to be sort of side fun and didn't realize, like the New Jersey trips, that I was going to be very glad I had taken notes, gotten materials, and had them on the bottom drawer of file. I was going to need them. However, Project Opus moved to Dominican, and I had my first visit to Dominican. I saw the quarters grow, and I was delighted to find that the new director was my friend, Sister Janet Welch, whom Sister Nona had introduced the two of us when we were both working on uh, doctoral dissertations, and we'd been friends ever since. And every once in a while, would show up together at conferences. The plans at that time that Sister Nona had made in 1998 were for a volume two that would treat Dominican history in six different regions. And the timeline would be from 1865, where volume one ended, to 1910. And there would be 
way in the future, a volume three that would pick up after 1910. That all changed. I remember looking at those plants and saying, hmm, well, I know Sister Nona came to us and I know she came here and there and I know she hadn't gotten to something else. I wonder how Janet is going to be able to pick up on this plan 10 years later with all its complications, all right? Wisdom, <laughs> she didn't. There got to be a new plan. And the format would change from a book of regional, more or less chronological in each region, to a book of essays that would treat the variety of Dominican work from 1865 to the present. Hmm, I was thinking, I wonder what my job will be. I had already written up a complete history of the New York, all the branches, and I had worked with my colleague in New England who retired, left me all of her notes and asked me to write New England. So I'd done both of them. Hmm, What's going to happen to them? A call went out for papers, and I remember the deadline for the papers was December Uh, 2014. So the call must have gone out early in the fall. And it gave a variety of topics. So I submitted several topics that I'd worked on and that I already had written up thinking, okay, this won't be a lot of extra work because I've done most of this already. I was dead wrong. We got an invitation to a planning meeting for this book of essays. And this planning meeting was to take place at Notre Dame in March of 2015. I remember having to leave Mariondale, which is our headquarters for Hope and is uh, in Austin, New York. I got up at 4 a.m. and one of their wonderful uh, grounds people drove me to Westchester Airport. My flight left at six and I arrived at Notre Dame around one o'clock in the afternoon. At the planning meeting, my job was to be a chapter or essay on the Dominican women's monasteries, all of them. Yes, I had done some work on them. And luckily on some of my sideline adventures, I had done a few that I had not expected to use. And now I was mentally thinking, "Mm, what drawer, what folder, I know I have this. And as we talked with the other authors, I realized that the work that I had done would not go to waste because I had files and I had written papers on topics now that other people were going to need. So I shared uh, all the work that I'd done in New York with uh, James Carroll, and I shared some of my other work with Maggie McGinnis. And I drew up a new travelogue. In a way, it was like the summer of 1999 replayed. But this was the summer of 2015. Some work was with material that had not existed back in 1999. Now, some of the communities had websites. 
so that I was able to get material that I would have had a lot more trouble with if I were doing this 10 years earlier. My visiting tour in that summer started at the end of June with Our Lady of Grace Monastery in North Guilford, Connecticut. From that community, I had two days rest, and then I drove in the opposite direction and went to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'd visited Lancaster area as a tourist and a, a person who was interested in the Shakers, but I had never realized that there was a Dominican monastery there. When I got to Lancaster, I met Sister Veronica, who was one of the most memorable of the prioresses that I worked with. And Sister Veronica said, after supper, instead of going to recreation, our sisters are going to come to the big visitor's parlor, we're going to open the uh, sliding door grills, which was the kind they had, and uh, would you like to talk with the whole community? And I said, oh, I'd love to. And we had already spoken of the fact that they had two cats as mascots for the monastery. And I, I'm sure my eyes lit up because I love cats. And I had told Sister Veronica that. So after supper, the whole community was eight sisters. They met and one of them had in her arms a big male tuxedo cat. Uh, if you know anything about cats, a tuxedo cat is black with white paws and a white shirt front. He was introduced to me as Sammy, and the sister who was holding him suddenly reached across uh, the counter and said, would you like to meet Sammy personally? He'd like to meet you. And that was the only interview I had done with a tuxedo tomcat in my arms, Sammy purring away. So uh, I also learned something that didn't apply to any of the other communities, that when the Lancaster community was first founded a little further south in Pennsylvania, they had the distinction of being the only one that the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross in front of, which kind of gave you the impression where Catholics and especially Catholic sisters stood in that part of Pennsylvania. Um, you know, and if you're wondering what else happened, the Knights of Columbus phoned each other because the one who lived nearest to the site saw the cross and the Knights of Columbus came to their rescue and stood guard for the rest of the evening and they had no further problem. But something else happened to me at Lancaster that set me off on another type of trip. Father Ambrose, their chaplain, told me when I asked him if he knew anything about the monastery in Cincinnati that had closed in the early 1980s. I was having trouble finding material on it. He said, sister, you have to go to Delaware. And I said, Delaware? And he said, yes, there's a small experimental community, just three sisters. They're living in what used to be the parish convent. We don't know how long it's going to last, but they've been there for two or three years. Two of those sisters were members of the Cincinnati con uh, monastery at the time it closed. Just ask for Sister Mary Grace. So I called and within another week, I was on the road again to 
Newcastle, Delaware, which is just at the end of the Delaware Memorial Bridge. And I got all of the material I needed. They, they loved talking about the Cincinnati affair. Besides that, they also had a cat as a mascot. They said, she's rather shy. You may not meet her or, or you may. And when it was time for my meal, I was invited to sit down at the dining room table. And as I was sitting there having a, a really delicious lunch, I felt something brush against my legs. I looked down and there was a gray, small gray tiger cat. And they said, oh, Gina came in to meet you. So that, that was the second house that I had an interesting time with with a cat. From there, I drove west, west of D.C., and I, I have been to Washington and conferences before, so I knew enough not to go into the city to stay on the Beltway and look for directions. And I went to the newest, uh, in terms of building, uh, monastery. It is in a place called Linden, Virginia. It's hill country. It's, uh, I believe, considered part of the Shenandoah part. It was beautiful. It was, in a way, like going back to Buffalo. Uh, visitors' parlors, waist-high counter, grills, uh, some of their prayer I was invited to, but from the public chapel. I could hear them. I couldn't see them. I had a wonderful time there too. But again, I got the, one of the sisters had permission to take me outside to the front garden and point out the hills and one hill in particular that was part of their property. I looked at that hill. I looked back at the house with all its closed curtained windows and thought I would not want to live here. I don't think I could stand looking looking at that hill and not be able to go out and climb it. Uh, one thing that finished my Linden visit was an envelope sealed, handed to me as I left by their prior assistant, Mary Paul. And she said, uh, open this later. And when I opened it, it was a very generous check with a note that this was to help me on my travels and with my work. So I was really getting around. Uh, what that did was bring me to the places that I didn't, no matter how many generous checks I got, there just would not be enough money to go to these places. And so I had set up phone calls. First, I would look at websites, then leave a website open. And with the website, talk with the person on the other end. And I had written each one of them to ask if they had any kind of newsletters, uh, anything that would tell me about uh, their community and uh, its kind of status right now. And places that I went to in that way that summer were Marbury, Alabama, in the Infant Jesus in East Texas, and two West Coast monasteries. One was in Los Angeles. I had heard that they were actually in the Hollywood section. 
And as I talked, I said, are you really in, in Hollywood? And she said, yes, our monastery is under the first O in the Hollywood sign. And yes, according to what I'd heard, they had had as patronesses and benefactors Loretta Young and uh, Bob Hope's wife, Dolores. And then to mention several other names that I remembered from my years with movie magazines as a teenager. Uh, they also told me that they had a special recipe for peanut brittle and that that was one of the ways that they supported the Hollywood monastery. Uh, I found different monasteries had different things that they sold in their gift shops. And I have a number of those things home. The one that is closest to me as I'm looking at the corkboard over my computer reads my motto for dealing with technology and computer, a beautiful laminated bookmark that reads, nothing shall be impossible with God. That's probably the most used and looked at souvenir of all the ones I got. Uh, the last of the West Coast monasteries was in Menlo Park, uh, which is in Silicon Valley. I had to wait another year for that to happen, but History of Women Religious gave a um, conference at Santa Clara University, also in the, the um, valley. And I took some, stole some hours off when I should have been in conferences, but I took BART, which is the famous uh, San Francisco ground train. And it was only, turned out to be only about four stops away from Santa Clara, brought me to Menlo Park. And there I met another prioress who had a progressive way of looking at the rules. She had asked me uh, how I felt about getting off the train. And she said, the monastery isn't far away. But she said, oh, I'll send somebody to meet you. And that somebody turned out to be Sister Christine herself. And there on the platform was the familiar white habit. So um, I enjoyed Menlo Park very much. And she told me all kinds of things I didn't know about Silicon Valley and their adventures there. My writing of all this material actually started in 2016 and finished in 2017. I was able to share my past writing with those colleagues. And then I got a my last chance to talk with Janet, Janet Welch, uh, happened at a uh, Dominican College's colloquium at Providence College in Rhode Island. Now that's an easy drive for me, but I was thrilled to hear that Janet was going to be there. So that was my last chance to talk about it uh, with Janet. And I remember her saying, I'm so glad you decided to stick with us. You could have given up. Uh, I didn't say that I was tempted to give up, but I'm glad I chose to stick with them too. So I, if you were to ask me what I got out of all of this besides the job, the history, the travelogue, I think I would have to say it was the experience of early morning mass 
at a number of these monasteries where, and I'm thinking in particular of the Connecticut Our Lady of Grace and the Lancaster Monastery, where you had to go out of the guest quarters and walk along a, an outdoor porch to get to the chapel. It would be like six in the morning. I would step outside and there would be all the birds singing away. And both times, even though it was summer, a lovely early morning breeze. And then you stepped into this quiet, beautiful chapel and listen to the nuns chant office and then be able to participate in the mass. I'm a singer, so I'm always happy to go somewhere where I can sing with them. And I was welcomed to sing uh, at any of the places I went to. But I think that early morning, if ever I were tempted to switch from active to the contemplative, it was those two times. But then I jog every morning a little bit later than six. It's usually a little after seven where I am. And uh, we're surrounded by hills, woods, and we're not too far from the banks of the Hudson River. So I tell myself, this this is my contemplative chapel, and uh, I love it. So that's my story. No, that's great, Sister Cecilia. And, and I actually want to, you know, you were talking about that's your own contemplative moment. And I think one of the things that I would found so fascinating about our current time is the way that you kind of outlined this desire among American women in the late 19th century and to the 20th century to devote their lives to a life of prayer and how hard sometimes that argument is to make to their superiors and to benefactors. Like, how do you convince someone to sponsor a community that wants to spend their time in contemplative life? And I wonder if you could just say something about that. And maybe also, um, you know, I think one interesting thing about our current moment, of course, is that we are always talking about like mindfulness and also kind of new ways of, of returning to some level of contemplation in a very digital age. And I wonder if you see any connection between the past and the present in that respect. Uh, yes, and I'd have to say that my personal connection with the, the contemplative would be from, uh, if you've ever heard of Western Priory in Vermont and their music. Um, I first went there with a group of my sisters back in the 70s when they were first making records. And until I stopped had to stop driving a year ago. I went anywhere from two to four or five trips to Vermont. And I got kind of the way I pray. Uh, I pray cross-legged uh, on the floor with a little cushion under me. And the music I use, uh, I managed to get a private lesson once from Brother Timothy on uh, their fingering techniques with guitar. So um, I'm Dominican, but there's quite a bit of Western, which is Benedictine, mixed in with the Dominican. And uh, that's really my key to contemplative. Um, when these communities, these monasteries were being founded, they often had a difficult time finding a bishop and a diocese that was willing to take a contemplative community in. 
Uh, and the problem was usually two things. One, how are they going to support themselves? And two, we need teachers for these new Catholic school systems that were expanding all over the country. And uh, several of the communities received tentative yes from a bishop if they would also teach. And in all of these cases, the answer was no. And eventually they would find bishops who could see a, a value to having a prayer community in their diocese. But uh, they really had a, a difficult time. They would write four, five, six different bishops until they got one who was willing to take a contemplative community. And that is why um, at all of the places that I visited, there was some kind of a financial arrangement, a gift shop, some kind of a product like uh, Hollywood's peanut brittle. Uh, but there, was, uh, there have always been uh, a problem with the communities and the question of support. Yeah. So that's an ongoing thing. Well, we could probably even say that it's an ongoing thing since the medieval period. I mean, they've always tried to think about ways that they can support themselves. And, and you know, I think it's also an interesting study in the ways where I saw the sisters also testing bishops on, do you believe in the value of prayer? How much, how much do you believe in it? <laughs> like, would they, yes. would they write those letters, yeah. you know? And if, if you do, then it works out and they can, they can support themselves and they, they figure it out, of course. But, but it, I, uh, yeah, it was also kind of like, it was an interesting way of sorting out the, the distinction between utility of service, but also the value of prayer as a act of the church in and of itself. Uh, one of the reasons that the Bronx community has thrived, uh, their mother community was the very first of the contemplative communities in the United States. Um, there are two networks of contemplative communities, and the first, they both came from France. The first one was founded by an American woman who couldn't find the kind of monastery she was looking for here in the States and traveled to France, entered a French monastery, and was promised that um, if she lasted, if, if she found that the life was right for her, that when she was finally professed, she would be able to go back to America and found a Dominican contemplative community like the French community. And that is how the Newark, New Jersey house started. And at the time she was looking to start and she had several siblings here in the United States. And one of them was a brother who was a businessman who helped. But one of the women in her family had married one of the men in the community, uh, in the family of a bishop. And that bishop at this time was the Bishop of Newark. Uh -huh. And so that was how that first community got into Newark. That bishop, by the time the community arrived and they settled all of the problems, red tape, I suppose you'd call it, as well as financial things, but they were assisted by her brother. 
that bishop had been, we would say, promoted to Archbishop of New York. And he said the bishop that was taking his place in Newark was just as open to contemplative community as he was, so that they needn't worry about the change, but that he wanted a contemplative community in New York City. And so once he got into New York, got himself settled, he went house hunting, land hunting. He found a a house that they could rent for a year and a plot of land and financing for a monastery. And within a year, um, they had a second monastery, which is still there. And that is the Corpus Christi Monastery. And their particular uh, form of prayer that they were committed to came from their foundress back in France, the one who uh, supported the French monastery that she entered. And that uh, was a countess. And the, the countess said she would build them a monastery, providing they would agree to have perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And uh, the material about And this one was like the sister I worked with. The original name was Sister Mary of Jesus. That's why there's always been a Mary of Jesus in those communities ever since. But um, she agreed and she said, it's not a particular Dominican devotion, but there's no reason why we couldn't. And so all the communities that came from that first one in Newark, all have a perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament in their chapels. The second community that came uh, was founded by a French priest who was very devoted to the rosary. And his thing was to found a group of sisters that would have what's called perpetual rosary. There would be someone in the community saying the rosary every hour of the day, 24 hours. Nowadays, uh, that is not so often the full 24, the night hours, depending on the size of the community. But all during the day, early morning and evening hours, there is a sister in the chapel. And something else that has come from all of this with me is just this year, I answered an invitation from the Summit community to belong to their perpetual rosary society, which for lay people means that you choose a day of the month. And on that day, you will spend an hour with your rosary. I chose the 23rd because it's my birthday date in January, and I'm on my third month. No, that's, that's cool. That's, yeah, that's a, well, also that's really nice to hear how the community kind of invited you into their life in various ways. You know, I know some invited you there like more than others. And that was kind of the way you were able to see the diversity within the community um, too, is like, it's not just one thing. And the only, another question, and feel free, those who are on the call to ask any questions you have for Sister Cecilia, because um, I know we're getting up on, on to the hour now, but, you know, currently probably one of the most, one of the more interesting kind of outreach movements within the church in general has been the kind of ways in which nuns have partnered with people who have no religious affiliation, the nuns and the nuns. So N-U-N-S-N-O-N-E-S. 
I know you're, you're aware of this movement. I wonder if you have any reflection on, on your own work and how, how that, the kind of the power of, of contemplative life kind of interfacing with the world beyond its, its walls. Yeah. I think I find that um, when I get a new class at, at a yes. semester, they fill out a, a little information card with practical things like where can I find you on campus? What's your home address, long commute and everything. But uh, I asked them that if they don't mind, would they tell me what their religious denomination background is? And I said, and it's perfectly all right to say none. Or, you know, if you think you're going to shock me, I have had information cards that uh, told me Wicca. And there is an active Wicca movement in New Paltz to the north of us. But uh, I often find um, the way they put it this year was non-practicing Catholic. So I talk about my own personal spiritual life, and, and I don't mean formal, but I talk about the way I pray, when I pray, early morning jogs, and I find that they're, they're interested. So that's the particular way that I go at that question. We do have a group of N-U-N and N-O-N-E uh, working uh, out of our uh, house in Osming, and they have uh, regular meetings, and there is a, a sizable number of N-O-N-E-S uh, interested in this, and uh, our sisters, uh, several of them are quite active with them. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting conversation because it's it's uh and it's coupling people who are kind of curious about maybe grew up you know non-practicing Catholic or or away from the church or away from religion in general, but also with people who you know really vowed their whole lives towards to towards a life of service and, and in this case prayer too with contemplatives and it's a it's a been a fascinating thing to watch especially as a historian as I'm sure you feel too is these interesting ways in which people are trying to interface with a past that they never experienced and with their own present. I've also found an interest though in certain Catholic traditions that uh, some of them really didn't know very much about, but they liked hearing me describe uh, mm -hmm. things like the Advent wreath and how you could use it, uh, the use of candles to accompany prayer all kinds of little things that to me are automatic because I'm a cradle Catholic and went to Catholic schools all the way up to my second graduate school, which was Princeton and yep. Princeton uh, was Presbyterian. That was the right. first time that, that I was in a Protestant atmosphere, but uh, they're interested in the traditions. Yeah, they, I don't they... say they're gonna practice them, but they're interested in hearing about them. And yeah. someday they might. Yeah, no, I don't think it's it's a uh, no. I think there's there's a lot of interest there. Well, thank you. I, I don't want to keep people beyond the time that we we promise everyone, but I just want to thank you, ever you know, thank you, Sister Celia, for being on the call tonight and all your work, kind of studying this amazing history in the in the Dominican order, but also in the history of American religion, and of course, too, of of a lot of women who've really just decided to that they're, they're going to devote their lives to prayer and and all the. I also find it really fascinating too, just the way that you highlighted so much diversity within even this this community that sometimes is seen as you know more conservative because they're cloistered, of course, but but they don't you know you have diversity even within that community. Yeah, they don't. They're not all cloistered in the same mode. 
Right, in the same mode. And I think that's a that's a good lesson for us to walk away with. And okay. before I go, I, I just want to really, I want to thank two, um, I know you mentioned them, Maggie McGinnis and Jeff Burns really made this mm-hmm. book possible and they really, you know, helped kind of quarterback everything. And so I want to thank them too for making this this thing possible. And I'm, and I also want to thank you, Sister Cecilia, for not giving up <laughs> and following <laughs> through with this chapter because the book would not be possible if you hadn't. And you and others and other authors as well. Okay, and I want to add one PS for my 80th birthday, I get a cat. I now have a cat of my own. <laughs> yes, I it, it, it would be even, yeah, probably even nicer if it was a descendant of one of the sisters that you studied <laughs> <laughs> or the cats that they had. So yeah, congratulations, that's great. Okay, well, thank you everyone for being here tonight. And thank you, especially for Sister Cecilia and thank you for um, Mount St. Mary's and all the people in the East who've, who've been on the call and have supported us in various ways. And, you know, one of the things, one of the kind of crown jewels of the McGreal Center's collections is, is the monastery records. Um, and and we, we just really, especially this year when we've been thinking about how Dominicans have interfaced with disease, they've been real gems. And so I, I um, so thank you for all your work and um, thank you for logging in and and I hope you have a wonderful night tonight. Thank you. Any final words, Sister Celia, before we log off? I think I'd just like to thank everyone who's interested enough to listen to my going on about these, my adventures. I always yeah. love talking about them. Well, it sounds like, it sounds like a, a, a good ride and I would have loved to be by your side. I, I know it would have been maybe perhaps different if I was, but at the same time, it sounds really interesting. So thank you so much. The schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Rey Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.